0: Sometimes we know things, sometimes we don't know things, and sometimes we know things that we don't know we know. Is it possible that a 19th century novelist wrote what he thought was a pretty interesting tale, but had actually tapped into the secret secret of the the universe, universe, a universal energy that pervades all life and can be used to both create and destroy? Maybe, maybe not, but a lot of people sure think so. Today, we take a look at the strange case of The Vril. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries each episode, we'll examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the Clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain. That's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. <laughs> English Whig politician Edward Bueller had an interesting life. He came from money, but when he insisted on marrying a beautiful Irish woman named Rosina Doyle Wheeler instead of who his mother wanted for him, his mother cut him off entirely so he had to work for a living like the rest of us. Though he thought of himself as a writer, he ended up going into politics. Finances were tight and he and his wife quarreled often. While he was trying to win an election in 1858 she stood up in a public meeting and denounced him he reacted by having her committed to an asylum for the insane but when word of this drastic action got out he had to recant and have her released she would start writing herself under the name lady lytton writing 18 books over the next 41 years when edward's mother died in 1843 he found upon reading of the will that he was back in the upper crust and her will instructed him to add the name Lytton to his name and accept a royal license for the Lytton Coat of Arms. So now he was Edward Bueller Lytton. He continued on in politics. He was British Secretary of State for the colonies for a year in the late 1850s under Queen Victoria, during which time he selected Richard Clement Moody to be Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia and essentially the founder of British Columbia in Western Canada. He gained power and influence and friends, and in 1862, when the King of Greece abdicated, He was actually offered the crown, but he refused. In addition to his political career, he wrote throughout his entire life, penning 29 novels, some of which got turned into operas, two syndicated series, three books of poems, and eight plays. Though he's largely unknown today, Bueller-Lytton was highly respected and influential in his day. He coined some rather famous phrases that we still use. The dweller on the threshold, which is a term that H.P. Lovecraft, among others, would use. The great unwashed. It was a dark and stormy night, pursuit of the almighty dollar, and his most famous line, the pen is mightier than the sword. He's said to have convinced Charles Dickens to change the ending of Great Expectations, which originally had an unhappy ending, and his novel, Ernest Maltravers, was the first Western book ever to be translated into Japanese. Like so many smart people of the day, he became interested in Helena Blavatsky's theosophy, Rosicrucianism, and other elements of esoteric philosophy, as well as being an early pioneer of horror and science fiction. In May of 1871, he published an early science fiction novel called The Coming Race. The Coming Coming Race. Coming, Race The novel is narrated by an unnamed young man who finds an entrance to a secret underground world inhabited by angel-like creatures. One of these creatures shows him around a city down there that looks eerily similar to Egyptian architecture, and the narrator becomes a guest of this creature, hanging out with his family. This creature is kind of the local equivalent of a magistrate in this society. He ends up teaching them English, and they end up teaching them his language using some kind of form of telepathy. The civilization he discovered underground is called the Anna, They had fled underground during a massive flood on the surface, maybe the one mentioned in the Bible, and down there they had advanced greatly using a special fluid called Vril, V-R-I-L, that gave them astonishing mental abilities. Using the Vril, the Anna can transmit information with their minds, alleviate pain in themselves or others, induce sleep in others, heal, change matter, and, if they so wish, cause incredible destruction. The Vril is controlled by the mind, but it can also be controlled using a special staff that has something kind of like a keyboard on it or kind of like a a saxophone. So dependent are they upon this fluid that the race refers to themselves as the vril Ya. They believe that all life is permanent and there is no such thing as death or destruction, matter merely changes forms. So, while they may once have been human or human-like, while they have been living underground through the millennia, they have changed so much that they are essentially aliens, and with the power of the Vril, the Ya are essentially gods. The females are physically larger than the males, and both sexes enjoy equal rights. It's the women who instigate courtship, and marriages last for three years, after which time the male gets to decide if they will renew the vows for another three years or dissolve the partnership. Well, a romantic entanglement ensues between our narrator and his host's daughter, and he ends up escaping back to the surface to avoid trouble. He warns the reader at the end that one day the Vril Ya will run out of space down there under the earth and will be forced to return to the surface where normal humankind will be no match for them and their powers. This is the coming race of the title. Pretty innovative stuff for 1871, and it was very Popular. It ended up being a major influence in H.G. Wells' 1895 The Time Machine and sparked much spirited debate, especially about this vril substance. People would talk about it as if it were something real, and he had a clear picture in his mind. He later would end up saying in interviews he thought it was essentially electrical in nature, and yet it was also a fluid. So yeah, people loved it. George Bernard Shaw was a big fan, and the word vril started being used all over England to describe any of a number of healthful elixirs being peddled. And it also gave its name to a meat extract paste called bovril, which combines vril with the word bovine, which was a precursor to marmite. This is certainly not the first and only time that someone imaginative came up with an idea that then spread into the zeitgeist. As I said, several times people would ask if this real stuff was real, and he said, of course, it wasn't, I just made it up. But simply denying something has never stopped some people, and many esoterics started thinking that maybe it really was a real substance, and he was simply trying to cover it up. Helena Blavatsky sure thought so. She thought it was a magical, alchemical fluid, and she also thought his description of the underground Vril Ya, or Ana people, was also accurate, though she thought they were a benevolent, spiritual race of beings and guides to the spirit world, not indifferent and potentially dangerous as the novel had them. Well, that was certainly good enough for most of her followers. If she'd said you gotta eat a carrot upside down, people would have eaten it upside down. A man named William Scott Elliott wrote a book about Atlantis in 1896 in which he explicitly says that Atlantis used Vril as a power source for their airships. Vril Vril for for the the fatalant. Jump ahead a couple of generations to 1947. German rocket scientist Willy Ley, who'd fled Germany to the U.S. in 1937 or 34 or 35, depending on what source you believe, he wrote an article for Astounding Science Fiction titled Pseudoscience in Nazi Land." In this 1947 article, he explains that one of the reasons the Nazis were able to essentially brainwash their entire country's population was that the culture was already rife with conspiracy theories, offbeat occultism, and outrageous pseudoscientific notions. He describes one group in Berlin, known as the Wahrheitsgesellschaft, or Society for Truth, who had read Bueller-Lytton's novel, The Coming Race, taken it as a non-fiction book and spent a good deal of their time and money and energy trying to find proof that the Vril and the Ja were real. Remember, the Nazis were heavily into occult stuff. Many higher-ups in the party firmly believed in UFOs and alien life, the power of magical rituals, the literal truth of the Nordic gods as flesh-and-blood beings, and so on. The SS was actually founded on ideas from the secret and occult wisdom of the Aryans. One of the symbols they used, besides the double-S lightning bolts, was a stylized black sun arranged in a wheel pattern. This was sort of an alternate for the Twisted Cross or swastika. This symbol has since been adopted by neo-Nazis and white nationalists all over the world. And even though they lost the war, beliefs are beliefs, and much of this thinking continued well after the war. Just because they lost doesn't mean that they stopped thinking what they thought was true. Much of this is documented in the very well-regarded 2002 book, Black Sun, Aryan Cults, Esoteric Nazism, and the Politics of Identity by historian Nicholas Goodrick-Clark, who wrote three other books on occult thinking and the Nazis, as well as a biography of Helena Blavatsky. In Black Sun, he describes a group that formed in 1950 known as the Landig Group based in Vienna, also sometimes known as the Vienna Circle, though, be careful, there was also a group of philosophers in Vienna in the 1920s called the Vienna Circle, but this is a different Vienna Circle. Sometimes they were also known as the Vienna Lodge. They were trying to find Thule, a mystical polar homeland of the ancient Aryans. The Aryans were real people, but they were Indo-Iranians, not Nordics. Well, as you can imagine, that doesn't sit so well with people who hold white supremacist ideas. So Thule was postulated as an alternative origin spot for them, which would make Aryans totally Caucasian. This Vienna Circle started writing about how the Nazis had been doing work under the polar ice caps, that they had developed technology that we would now call UFO technology in secret subterranean bases in Antarctica, and they talked about the Black Sun and the possible existence of a substance called Vril, maybe to be found on a hidden island in the north known as Blue Island that would give the white Aryan races the power to conquer the world once and for all, as was their birthright." In 1960, two French journalists, Louis Poel and Jacques Bergier, wrote The Morning of the Magicians, a Charles Fort-like clearinghouse for all sorts of outlandish ideas ranging from alchemy and crypto history to Nazi occultism, UFOs, and ancient astronauts. In fact, some people think they are the origin of the ancient astronaut theories that would become such a fad in the 1970s and make Swiss author Eric Von Daniken so much money. The book Morning of the Magicians became a hit with the youth culture in the 60s and was translated into both German and English. It is considered to be one of the key precursor texts to the modern New Age movement. In this book, they talk about Maria Orsich a Croatian born in Vienna who was a powerful medium who supposedly was the first human to contact aliens from space using telepathic channeling back in 1917 and who founded the Vril Society, which is also known as the Luminous Lodge, a secret inner circle to the Thule Society with ties to the Golden Dawn in Britain. In his 2015 book about her influence, titled Castle Werfenstein and the Wonder Women of Vril, writer William Hinson says the term Vril first showed up in the ramblings, I'm sorry, writings of 19th century French pseudo-history guy Louis-Jacques Collieu, but he is almost certainly wrong. However, I am not going to go back and comb through Jacques Collier's 55 books, all in French, to verify that. I will say, though, that I did do a quick search of his first two books, which were written in 1868 and 1869, and there's no mention of a vril in either of those. And his third book wasn't written until 1873, which is two years after Edward Bueller Lytton's book, The Coming Race, and so Hinson is probably talking out of his hat. And Bueller Lytton is, in fact, the person who first came up with the term vril. Anyway, according to 2. Morning of the Magicians, Maria Orsic founded the Vril Society, where she shared the messages she'd received from the aliens who live on a planet orbiting the giant star Aldebaran in the constellation of Taurus, about 65 light years from Earth. These messages included detailed instructions for building what she called an out of this world flying machine, or a spacecraft, and that the aliens had visited Earth before, and when they did, humans mistook them for gods. She also learned how to channel special energies to become a Superman or woman by using an electrical fluid called the Vril, currently being used by a race of superior beings who live deep underground beneath the surface of the Earth. Hey, just like the novel, what a coincidence. She would go on to consult with Hitler himself in his attempts to become the ultimate Übermensch and gave them the plans to the special flying craft which we would today call UFOs and thus totally changed history. Oh yes, and as everyone likes to point out, she was super, super beautiful. Although she's the subject of many books, including the historical novel The Goddess of the Devil, Hitler's Medium by Mart Sander and a 2017 documentary called The Maria Orsich Story, there is no evidence that she actually existed at all. But maybe that's just because she vanished in 1945, being transported to Aldebaran, some say, taking all of her secrets with her. In his book, The Unknown Hitler, Writer Wolf Schwarzwallis says the Vril Society was real, but it was founded by Karl Haushofer, who'd been Rudolf Hess's teacher, and whose ideas, which he called geopolitik, and which included the idea of Lebensraum, greatly influenced Hitler's thinking. Haushofer has always said he never had any direct contact with anybody in the party apart from Hess, who was his student, and in fact, Hess did him a solid by giving his Jewish wife and his half-Jewish son papers, claiming that they only had a little bit of Jewishness in them, and so their therefore could be Reich citizens. But Schwarzwalder says, no, 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 he was actually a major player behind the scenes, leading the search for a mystical energy that could transform a human into something much more known as the Vril. Haushofer's son Albrecht would actually join the resistance against Hitler in Germany and become part of Operation Valkyrie, the plot to assassinate Hitler, and he was executed in April 1945. Just before the end of the war, and then after the war, both Haushofer and his wife killed themselves by drinking arsenic, though she took the extra precaution of also hanging herself. And so no one will ever know for sure if he was involved with the upper echelons of the Nazi Party, and if so, how deeply. It's never clear if these claims of a Vril society are real or if they're wholly made up. There's no supporting documentation that's ever emerged, so maybe it's all just fantasy, like the idea of a beautiful woman who could telepathically communicate with aliens. But this notion of an almost magical-seeming substance, or maybe energy, was still very much being talked about almost 90 years after Edward Bueller Lytton made it up. What's, the, What's time? the time? It's, it's time, time to time get Vril. Several novels came out with many of these Vril themes, but it started sounding first more like an energy and then a physical fluid, and then it, it kind of turned into something more spiritual or abstract. In 1992, or maybe earlier, it's actually hard to pin down, a German named Norbert Eugen Rothhofer self-published The Vril Project, a comically amateur spiral-bound work filled with all kinds of pictures of technical diagrams and sexy women. It talks about how the Vril Society, or maybe there were several Vril groups, were trying to harness this amazing power in order to dominate the planet. Now, he claims it's meant as a historical study of a cult-like movement that came out of the Nazis, but he subtitles it The Final Battle for the Earth, so he might take it a little more seriously than he pretends. He also says he's a Marcionite, which was an early Christian Gnostic sect back in the 2nd century CE. In 2015, he and his friend Ralph Etty, who claims to be a Templar himself, put the book up on the web as a slideshow. Check the episode notes for a link to this highly entertaining book. In 1995, German writer Jan von Helsing, apparently that's a pen name, wrote a book titled Secret Societies and Their Power in the 20th Century that includes, among all the other stuff it talks about, the Vrilgesellschaft or Vril Society and how it's hard to find any hard information about it because the Allies removed all evidence of its existence after the war. Damn, Damn. Allies. Allies. Of course, this guy managed to find it all out anyway, clever Clever guy. guy. He also fingers Karl Haushofer as the founder, but he says originally it was called the Brothers of Light, and then the Vril appellation got tacked on, and it was actually part of the Lords of the Black Stone, which is a new order of the Knights Templar. The Nazi SS was part of this, and their branch was codenamed the Black Sun. He says the Royal Society was really all about using mediums to telepathically contact aliens, and he specifically mentions the probably fictitious Maria Orsic, as well as another psychic person only known as Sigrun. They learned through their psychic trances that there are beings living on two planets circling the Aldebaran. There are the Light of God people, known as the Aryans, and also sometimes the Sumerians, and then there's a mishmash of humanoid beings who have darker skin. Yeah, uh, I think you see I where, see where, this, where is going. this is going that are the result of mutations brought about by climactic changes in their planet's biosphere. These darker, mongrel people continue to mix their genetic material, further polluting themselves and holding back their spiritual growth. When the stars started expanding, the light-skinned, god Aryans evacuated these mongol beings to various other planets they could live on. One such planet was here in our solar system, known as Malona, or maybe Marduk or Maldek, that used to exist between Mars and Jupiter, but got destroyed, and that's the asteroid belt. From Malona, they went to Mars, and then they eventually visited Earth, settling in Mesopotamia and the Fertile Crescent many, many millennia ago. Though the God of Light Aryan Sumerians were telepathic, they also used a spoken language that is exactly the same as what we today call Sumerian, but also had elements of a Proto-Germanic language. I'm not gonna say Jan van Helsing is a white supremacist trying to hide his ideas behind pseudo-scientific gibberish, except that's probably what he is. He goes on, their science was twofold. It could be destructive or it could be creative. Things like fire or coal, and later combustion engines, are destructive, so therefore inherently evil. But there is another purer form of energy that can create or reconfigure matter using something called implosion, as opposed to explosion. The knowledge of the existence of this divine alternative energy was known to Pythagoras. Later, the Knights Templar learned about it. This was the big secret that they were hiding. For more on them, check out the Templar episode. Johannes Kepler found out about it, and And many others throughout history have learned of its existence and explored it and written about it, disguising it as mystic texts and then scientists later rediscover these things. This is the great work of the Freemasons and the goal of alchemy. Implosion energy would also allow one to construct anti-gravity craft and access antimatter. Hans Hofer, says Van Helsing, shared all this knowledge with Hitler and the Nazis built a series of floating flying disks or saucers or they tried to anyway but their attempts were only semi-successful and uh, so they built another version using combustion engines instead they couldn't quite get the uh, (laughs) anti-gravity off the ground (laughs) see what I did there these Nazi hybrid vehicles were the Foo Fighters reported by Allied pilots during World War II after the defeat of Nazi Germany the American operation paperclip was not only about gathering up German scientists for use in developing the atomic bomb. But this technology as well. So for Van Helsing, Vril was used to build a series of human-built UFOs. Just drill out, out, man. man. Gray Barker, a UFO guy who very possibly created the whole Men in Black story, or at least certainly disseminated the foundational Men in Black tale, more on that in a previous episode, supposedly knew a guy known as Valiant Thor. This was a mysterious figure who hung around the Pentagon in the late 50s, dishing out advice. According to insiders, he was actually commander of the Venusian forces here on Earth, known in their hierarchy as Commander X, and he had come here to see if Earth was ready to join the intergalactic community. He, like other inhabitants of Venus, followed the teachings of Jesus, as well as those of Krishna, Buddha, and Tecumseh, of all people. These were all humans who had tapped into an invisible, rejuvenating energy source that creates, heals, and nurtures life called, you guessed it, the Vril. The fact that the Nazis played around with this has nothing to do with the Vril. The Vril doesn't have an agenda. It's a tool. It just is. And it is accessed by humans when they shed their preconceived notions and open themselves up to love. Throughout the centuries, it has been known by many words, mana, prana, chi, qua, there are now several New Age books attributed to Valiant Thor for sale, most of them published in the noughties. So someone is certainly cashing in on this name. I actually couldn't find out who's writing these, but some of them do have co-authors. And one of these is Frank E. Stranges, even though he died in 2008. So someone is cashing in on his name as well. Strangers is notable because of his 1967 book, The Stranger at the Pentagon, where the story of Valiant Thor first appears. Strangers was a wandering evangelist preacher who also claimed to have multiple PhDs in psychology, philosophy, and criminology. The FBI had a memo to Hoover that said that they'd done a little investigating of this guy because he'd been going around telling people that he was also associated with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Strangers believed aliens came to Earth in order to spread God's word and he first met Valiant Thor when a woman came up to him after a sermon and invited him to come to the Pentagon for a visit. One assumes he must have slipped some alien talk into his sermons because otherwise how would the Venusian commander have known about him? Thor hung around for just a couple of years, leaving in his spaceship, named Victor 1, in 1960, though some people say he's actually still here, hanging out on the shores of Nevada's Lake Mead, just east of Las Vegas, in a cloaked spaceship, which means it's invisible. One assumes he and his Venusian crew must make the 80-mile-or-so trek to Vegas strip from time to time for some serious partaying Earthling style, because what happens happens in in Vegas Vegas and and Venus Venus. stays stays in Vegas. Vegas. After he published his tell-all book, Strangers went on to write much more about UFOs, alien contact, vril energy, and more. He also got very into end-of-days stuff. He was loathed by more serious members of the UFO community, and especially by the people at NICAP. Okay, so an itinerant evangelist carved out a new niche for himself by peddling a tale that aliens believe in God, a Christian God, and the universe runs on a semi-mystical love energy. There are clearly worse things you could go around saying. Who knows how this guy came across the word Vril. I mean, maybe he read the original novel, or maybe he read some of Blavatsky's Theosophy stuff. Maybe he was researching Nazi UFOs, though. In 1967, how would he have? It's a head-scratcher, for sure. How did this guy find out about the word Vril while wandering around going from tent revival to tent revival? I gotta say, a lot of this stuff reminds me of two true stories the 1977 Vrillon Incident in southern England, and Wilhelm Reich's Orgone Energy Experiments. The Vrillon incident. Incident. incident At 5.10 p.m. on November 26, 1977, someone hijacked England's independent broadcasting authority Hannington Transmitter in the middle of a short news summary on ITV. The image distorted, and then the audio was replaced by a strange voice that spoke. It started like this. This is the voice of of Vrilong, a representative representative of the Ashtar Galactic Galactic Command, speaking to you. you. For many many years years you have seen us us as lights lights in the skies. skies. We speak speak to you you now now in peace and and wisdom, wisdom, as we have done done to your your brothers brothers and sisters sisters, all over this, this, your planet planet Earth. Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster that threatens your world and the beings on our worlds around you. This is an order that you may share in the Great Awakening as the planet passes into the new age of Aquarius. And the message goes on for five minutes, warning us about the dangers of greed, confusing truth with lies, admonishing us not to trust people who wish to confuse us in order to control us, and that they, the intergalactic Ashtar command, want humans to basically get it together so that we can join our more spiritually evolved stellar neighbors in the galaxy. The image then distorts again, and the regular broadcast resumed, now at the beginning of the 1943 Mary Melodies," Bob Clampett directed Bugs Bunny cartoon Falling Hair. That's the one where Bugs is uh, on an airplane base in World War II and he encounters a bunch of little gremlins messing with uh, American planes. Well, you can imagine, this caused quite a stir. Hundreds of people called in asking, just what the hell was that? Papers picked up the story and pretty soon it became national news and then UPI got a hold of it and it became international news. ITV said it was a hoax. The Hennington transmitter is one that gets his signals not from a landline like most of them do, but from another transmitter, in this case the Roe Ridge transmitter which is on the Isle of Wight. So, someone with the right knowledge and skill could potentially intercept and hijack that signal. They later said that they had uncovered evidence that a jammer operating from Northern Hampshire had been responsible for the interruption. Plus, the distorted male voice clearly has a slight British accent, so it's almost certainly a British person, maybe with a bit of a sense of humor. The timing is also to be considered. By hijacking the signal during the 5 o'clock news summary, you are going to have not only a large audience, but a more serious-minded audience. People who are trying to hear the news, as opposed to, say, if you broadcast it during a sitcom or a game show or something. If you want to hear the entire thing, check out the dedicated playlist to this episode on our YouTube channel. Some people, of course, were not convinced. Oh yeah, well, if it was a hoax, then who was the culprit? Investigators never found out and no one ever came forward. Today, it still remains an unsolved mystery. Besides, true believers say, a prankster would surely have tried to pull some kind of a Orson Welles, War of the Worlds type of a thing and broadcast something scary, an invasion or something like that. But this message, well, it's a plea to get our act together and basically become hippies. But what about that name, Vrillon? The combination of a V and an R in English is pretty much unheard of at the start of the word, except for maybe the word vroom, which is barely a word. Did the person or persons responsible for this thing know about the whole Vril thing? In 1977, it's a pretty weird and obscure reference, to be sure. Of course, that could be just a coincidence, and Vrilon just sounded alien. Some have noted that just a little bit before this incident in 1973, a French sports car journalist named Claude Vorgillion had started what is now classified as a UFO church in France. It was called the International Raelian Movement or R-I-M because Vorgillion changed his name to Rael, which means messenger of the Elohim, he says. So maybe this was done by them because Vrillin and Vorgillion are pretty close. The International Raelian Movement believes all sorts of things they believe aliens created terrestrial life that cloning will create human immortality that science is the key to our survival and prosperity that so-called gods like the elohim of the bible are really just advanced beings and that the elohim will return to earth after an age of apocalypse etc 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 the religion is anti-war anti-catholic pro-cloning pro-gmo pro-science and pro-toplessness for women Rael has written a few books, including the 1976, The Book That Tells the Truth, Beings from Outer Space Took Me to Their Planet, and 1978, Space Aliens Took Me to Their Planet. I believe that he thinks that they took him to their planet. He also wrote a book on sensual meditation in the late 1980s. Wilhelm Reich. Medical doctor and psychoanalyst Wilhelm Reich was one of the second round of people trained in psychotherapy in the Freud circle. After graduating from medical school in 1922, he ran Freud's outpatient clinic in Vienna. Reich would become a pretty influential guy in psychology and psychoanalysis, with a major emphasis on how the body interacts with the mind. He pioneered gestalt therapy, bioenergetic analysis, and primal therapy. The phrase sexual revolution, which would be taken up by the youth culture of the 1960s, is his and student protesters in 1968 in Berlin and Paris actually threw copies of his book, The Mass Psychology of Fascism, at police, because by then Reich had become quite popular among that group. He started thinking sex was the key to everything, since it involved both mind and body, and a good deal of neuroses had to do with problems of what he called orgastic potency, which is the ability to have a full orgasm that includes pleasure and certain psychosomatic characteristics, what you might call a good one. He created a mobile clinic going around the city of Vienna pushing for eliminating stigmas on divorce, for people to use contraceptives, for the use of abortion, and promoting the idea that adolescents are also sexual beings and should be educated in the ins and outs, if you will. He had a bit of a Marxist take on Freud's ideas and openly gave sex counseling sessions. This is all very counterculture stuff for stick in the mud early 20th century Austria. He would sometimes engage in vegetotherapy, which looks at the physical manifestations of psychological and emotional states, by massaging nearly nude patients to release what he called their body armor, which is their musculature, where he thought a lot of this stuff was stored. This was a practice that many of his fellow psychotherapists frowned upon. Reich started thinking maybe Freud's concept of the libido was actually some kind of a bioelectric or maybe chemical substance. In 1939, he fled the Nazis for New York. There, he thought up the word orgone, combining the word organism with the word orgasm as a kind of a refinement of Freud's concept of the libido. He thought it was an energy created by biological beings and was essentially curative or creative in its properties. Sometimes when people in the past had accessed this energy, they thought that they had communicated to angels or God. He said orgone energy was everywhere. It was in the soil, it was in the air, it made the northern lights, and it is what made the sky look blue. So... He started building what were essentially very large Faraday cages that people could sit naked in, and which he said would collect orgone and concentrate it. He said this collected orgone could cure tumors and maybe schizophrenia. Orgone was not like electromagnetic energy, he said, but something different because it's inherently biological in its origin. He even wrote to Albert Einstein asking if he would be willing to experiment with one of his orgone accumulator boxes. Einstein agreed sitting naked in the box from time to time for 10 days in his basement to see if his temperature would rise without an outside source. This was a key proof in one of Reich's theories, and Einstein agreed if you could do that, well, that really would be something. Einstein did notice a rise in temperature. Reich said, ha ha, that proves that orgone is real. But Einstein said, no, I think it's because of temperature gradients in the basement. And that's what caused the temperature rise. So Reich sent him a whole bunch of suggestions on how he could insulate the box to prove that orgone existed and created heat all by itself. But by then, Einstein was no longer interested, telling him finally to please leave me alone and not use his name anywhere. Reich suspected that someone had gotten to Einstein, and that a conspiracy against him to discredit Orgon was in the works from those on high. Reich published all of his correspondence with the greatest scientific mind in his 1958 book, The Einstein Affair, in an effort to throw light on this shadowy conspiracy. He said they were targeting him partly because he was a Marxist and partly because certain industrialists and their government stooges continued to profit from people being ill and were very much dead set against a free source of healing energy like orgone. After all, you just sit in a box and you get it. Reich continued to make wilder and wilder claims for his boxes, which were made of plywood, sheet iron, and rock wool, which is a fiber insulation made of slag and basalt rock, which is a a safe substitute for asbestos. He said he absolutely could cure cancer with them, and he had saved several people's lives. Needless to say, after saying things like this, he lost his job, and then his neighbors kicked him out of his house for using animals in medical experiments, and yet he still had supporters and continued to work. His claims may have been a little bit out there, but honestly, who was he hurting after all? Okay, yeah, he was talking a lot about some sort of sexual revolution in the culture where sex would no longer be seen as something shameful and dirty, and that full orgasms were the goal because they produced the highest amounts of healthful healing orgone. But he had good intentions. He didn't say all this because he was some kind of dirty pervert. Imperial Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and five days later, FBI agents burst into Reich's home and arrested him. All his equipment and notes were confiscated. Reich was imprisoned at Ellis Island for three weeks, being left to sleep on the floor of the main hall at first, where some of his fellow prisoners were members of the German-American Bund, a U.S.-based pro-Hitler organization. He, being a Marxist, thought that these fascists would kill him, but then he had an attack of and they moved him to a medical ward and he was saved. The FBI questioned him about books they found in his home, hey, what are you doing with copies of Trotsky's My Life and biographies of Lenin and a children's Russian alphabet book and Hitler's Mein Kampf, pow. This went on and on for a number of days until Reich finally threatened to go on hunger strike. They released him on January 5th, but the authorities put him on their key figures list and watched his every move. It would later come out that there was another man named William Reich, who distributed communist material out of his bookstore in New Jersey, and the FBI had grabbed the wrong man. Reich left the city, buying a farm in Maine he named Orgonen, where he started a kind of a scientific commune to continue exploring the properties of orgone energy, which he was absolutely sure existed. Various journalists wrote articles mocking his ideas and work, and in 1947, the FDA decided that Reich and his 250-plus orgon accumulators constituted a clear case of fraud, that he was a con man and very probably a sexual predator as well. Reich continued undeterred. In nineteen forty. In 1950, he started a center to try and help identify and remove orgone blockages in children so they would not grow up with neuroses that would be very hard, if not impossible, to get rid of. This sometimes involved children standing naked in front of 30 or so researchers while they attempted to identify the organ blockages. Reich would then perform massage on the children in an effort to remove those blocks. I think you can see where this is going. Allegations, yes, of sexual abuse started coming out, but nothing was ever proved, and most of those allegations, to be fair, came from adults who heard about this, though some of the children said the massages were quite hard and not nice and hurt. UFOs and and Higgs Higgs becoming Higgs becoming bothersome. In 1951, Reich thought he'd discovered another hidden energy which he called DOR or deadly orgone radiation. When large amounts of DOR accumulate, they form deserts, he thought. So he invented a machine made of a series of aluminum pipes about 15 feet long connected to cables and the cables were then placed in water. He thought of this kind of as an orgone box inside out and he called it a cloud buster. He claimed he could control the weather by concentrating orgone energy through the pipes. In 1953, a group of local farmers, who were worried about their blueberry crop dying because of an extended drought, told him that if he could make it rain with a cloudbuster, they'd pay him handsomely. He did, and it did, and he got paid, and so he thought that his machine totally worked, which was just pipes, cables, and water. Reich was still on government watch lists, occasionally hassled by what he called Higgs, or hoodlums in government. He started telling people that he was safe, however, because President Eisenhower knew about him and was a friend, and occasionally, he would send Air Force planes to check on him. Reich continued to make and sell organ Accumulator boxes and make a healthy profit on it, and so, in 1954, the Maine District Attorney sought an injunction against what he saw as a irresponsible and fraudulent practice. Reich refused to appear in court after. After all, who are these people to judge my highfalutin scientific work? And so the court granted the injunction. All accumulators were ordered confiscated and destroyed, and books Reich had written about Orgone were to be removed from shelves everywhere and pulped. Reich had also started thinking that UFOs were real and that they were attacking the Earth. He claimed on several occasions to have seen cigar shaped craft, piloted by what he called energy alphas, spreading deadly orgone radiation, DOR, all across the land in order to kill life, which creates orgone. When he and his son saw what they thought was a UFO, they'd rush to one of the cloudbuster machines and try and drain it of all of its DOR energy before it could drop its deadly payload. He had another problem property in Arizona and once claimed to have had what he called, quote, a full-scale interplanetary battle with many DOR-spreading UFOs, destroying many of them with his cloudbusters. He started thinking that maybe his father, in fact, had been a space alien, and that's why he was uniquely able to sense their presence. In 1956, while Reich was in the Southwest battling aliens, a colleague tried to mail an organ accumulator to someone who had requested one. Unfortunately, the person who requested it turned out to work for the government, and it was a sting operation, and Reich was charged with contempt of court for ignoring the injunction. He again refused to appear in court, so he was arrested, being released on bail, the money for which was raised by supporters. When it came time for his hearing in court, he admitted that this attempt to supply someone with an organ accumulator certainly did happen. but. Had hey, he was out of the state at the time. And anyway, he isn't guilty no matter what because there are vast conspiracies working against him. So on May 7, 1956, a jury found Reich guilty and he was sentenced to two years in prison. The Wilhelm Reich Foundation was fined $10,000 and all accumulators and written information about them were ordered destroyed. So in the summer of 1956, agents of the U.S. government, just over a decade after they had helped defeat fascism in Europe, except for Spain and Portugal, engaged in book burning. Many accumulators were destroyed in June as well as materials about them and 251 copies of Reich's books. The remaining accumulators were demolished in July, and in August, six tons of Reich's writing was taken to a public incinerator in New York City and burned. This is now thought to be one of the worst cases of censorship in the United States history. Reich lost all of his appeals and went to prison on March 12, 1957, just before his 60th birthday. A prison psychiatrist who evaluated him upon admission said he showed clear signs of paranoia, delusions of grandeur, a persecution complex, and something called ideas of reference, which is like an extreme solipsistic condition in which the person believes that everything in the world they see or encounter refers somehow to their own personal, individual destiny. For example, if an airplane flew over the prison, Reich said that the had been sent there by the president to offer him hope and let him know that he was safe. In prison, Reich was known by fellow inmates as the flying saucer guy and also the sex box man. He would openly weep, sometimes quite loudly and in public, because he believed tears were beneficial. On November 3rd, after almost eight months in federal prison, Wilhelm Reich died in the night due to heart failure. And so ends the odd and somewhat sad tale of Wilhelm Reich. While he never used the word Vril, later people put two and two together and thought that Vril is exactly the same as Reich's notion. Orgone is the creative energy and DOR is the destructive one. In 1960, New York-based publishing house Farrar, Strauss, and Giro decided that burning a bunch of books, even ones that might be totally wrong, was uncool in the United States, and so they decided they would reprint most of his works. These books were eagerly bought up by the emerging counterculture, especially by the Beats and people like Timothy Leary and Robert Anton Wilson and the Discordians. Many of his non organ related ideas are still used in mainstream psychotherapy today, and he is considered by many to have been a radical pioneer who realized that the body holds much of the trauma that we experience, and the notion of a mind-body split may actually be inaccurate. And all that orgone stuff fit right in with the 1960s hippie movement. And a mixture of orgone and vril ideas would form the basis for a lot of the new age movement that would start emerging in the late 70s and then really take off in the 1980s. It even inspired the alt-pop scene. Supposedly, both Jack Kerouac and J.D. Salinger had used orgone accumulator boxes, and actor Orson Bean used to tout orgone therapy, as did William S. Burroughs. The evil Dr. Durand Durand, the 1968 film, Barbarella with his excessive machine that kills through a prolonged pleasure was probably based on Reich and of course that villain's name would be the inspiration for the name for the 1980s British pop group Duran Duran who used to play at a club in Birmingham called Barbarella's. The Orgasmatron in Woody Allen's 1973 film Sleeper is also inspired by Orgone Accumulator boxes. The 1973 double live album from British space rock band Hawkwing has a 10 minute long song called Orgone Accumulator. In 1973, Patty Smith wrote a song called Birdland about Reich. The distinctive tesseract-like red hats worn by new wave band Devo were designed to evoke Reich's orgone accumulators. Kate Bush's 1985 song Cloudbusting is about Reich's son remembering his father's arrest. Reich is played by Donald Sutherland in the video. Robert Anton Wilson wrote a play in 1987 called Wilhelm Reich in Hell. In 1999 a band formed in Los Angeles mixing funk, soul, and afrobeat and mainly instrumental tracks called Orgone. In 2013, a compilation album was released with musical works all inspired by Reich called 4-Beat Rhythm, The Writings of Wilhelm Reich. Author James Reich, no relation, has a fictional version of Reich using orgone therapy on a Hollywood producer in his 2017 novel Soft Invasions. And writer Damien Benoit Ludeau wrote a series of YA sci-fi books in 2018 in which an orgone-like energy grants superhero powers and a secret underground base exists under Orgonone, Reich's farm in Maine which is also now the current home of the Wilhelm Reich Museum. So ideas from an 1871 novel got picked up and tweaked into spiritualism and transmediumship by the cult-like leader Helena Blavatsky, morphed into Nazi UFOs, mixed with notions of secret societies, mysticism, and a little bit of white supremacism. And then this all blends together into a UFO mystic energy narrative that nicely combines with a well-meaning but unhinged psychotherapist belief, which in turn inspired the counterculture in the West that was trying to affect changes in the power structures that confined them politically and socially. And like everything else from the 1960s movement, this would eventually become commoditized in the 1980s into whole branches of alternative medicine, channeling, mystic energies, crystals, using pyramids to purify water, and the like. So in many ways, you could say that the story of the Vril is a shadow history of the 20th century. I wonder what Edward Bueller Lytton would make of all of it. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.